And so just begin with a bit of very light guidance for the meditation period here. And you can begin to really sense the natural stability of the body on your seat. And as you come into an upright posture, just know that the bones are carrying the weight of the body. And so the muscles might be willing to relax and soften and widen. And having settled into your relaxed meditation posture, then you can turn your attention to the sensations of touch 
somewhere in the body, just finding one place. You can rest the mind on sensations of touch, maybe in the hands or in the feet.
Beautiful. So that was our meditation for today. Just getting us uh, settled into our bodies and minds. And I'd like to go ahead and begin, as usual, with homage to the Buddha and the Triple Gem. Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arato Sama Sambutasa Bhutang Tamang Sanghangama Sami I want to tell you a story about some kids that were playing. Not an actual story of something that happened to me. It's a story that I read a number of years back. And it's about a group of kids that were playing hide-and-go-seek. And I think most people know how the game goes hide and seek, right? So there's one group of kids that hides, and there's one kid who is designated to be the seeker, the one who goes and finds the ones who have hidden. <clears throat> and, uh, and there was one kid who said, ah, I know the perfect hiding place. I'm going to go to that perfect hiding place and that kid who's looking won't be able to find me. So they went to their perfect hiding place and all the other kids who were hiding also went to their perfect hiding places, whatever they thought was the right place to hide. And then the, the kid who was doing the seeking went around and started finding the kids the hiding ones. And so the kid who was doing the seeking, well, they found one kid and they found another kid. And over time, they found all the kids except for the one, the one who was in the perfect hiding place. And they kept looking, but they weren't finding that kid. So much so that the other kids who had been hiding, who had been found, also started helping to look for the kid <laughs> who was in the perfect hiding place. But then what happened was, thankfully, that there was an adult also present. And the adult had seen this kid go to the, their place. And the adult went over to the kid and said, hey, kid, what are you doing? And the kid said, well, I'm here in my perfect hiding place. And the adult said, very wisely, said, hey, kid, get found. Get found. 
Mm. So the kid came out and everybody was happy. Yay! The end of the game. The kid got found. So I bring this story up because I want to say, of course, that Dharma practice is like this. Dharma practice is not about finding the perfect hiding place. There are many ways in which we can inadvertently think about practice like that. That practice will help me escape this thing or that thing. Some feeling in my body or some thought in my mind. Some person. There are lots of different ways in which we can think about the practice as a way, as the perfect hiding place. But that's really, that's not really what it's about. That would be a mistaken way of practicing. So perhaps starting with the most literal way, there's hiding from the world. There's going off to some remote place, being away from the world. Now, mind you that that can be helpful. That can be helpful for periods of time. A day, a week, a month, maybe even a decade. <laughs> Some traditions are known for their three-year retreats or their cave retreats. So sometimes it's helpful to go and be in, in that kind, in that degree of seclusion. But most of the time, we're still supported still be interacting with people, even to some extent. Jetsuma tends in Palma was known for 12 years in a cave in Tibet. And if you read the book that was written about her, about that period of time in her practice, she made good friends with the people at the post office. (laughs) Even though she was quite isolated in many ways. But we practice in community. We practice in community. And some traditions have a little bit more emphasis on that. Zen tradition is a good example of very strong emphasis on practice and community. You sleep together, you eat together, you meditate together, you bathe together. (laughs) Maybe that's a little bit too much closeness for some folks. But some degree of feeling integrated into the community, integrated into the Sangha. Practicing together with other people is very, very helpful.
partly because it's a nice support. It's nice to know that there are other people who share this value, who share this, this uh, interest. And partly because other folks can see things in us that we don't see in ourselves so easily. So it's not about hiding away from the world, really. In fact, there's a sutta, I keep, I've been trying to uh, hunt this one down and I haven't been able to find it again, but there's a sutta in which there's a practitioner who goes to the Buddha, relatively newly ordained monk, who goes to the Buddha and says, okay, I'm going to go in the forest and I'm going to go and, and really make an effort and wake up. And the Buddha says to this person, I don't think you're quite ready for that. And he insists and he insists and he says, no, I'm going. I want to go to the forest. Give me a teaching for me to practice with in the forest. And the Buddha says, okay, well, if you insist. <laughs> and so he goes. And then what happens? He finds that he's overwhelmed. It says this, it just says, he's overwhelmed by these difficult states of mind, these painful states of mind. And he comes back to the Buddha and he says, okay, all right. <laughs> you were right. I guess I wasn't right. But don't we all have difficult states of mind? Until, until absolute awakening. I mean, I think about even the story of the Buddha's last moments right he has he's attacked by mara and he has these visions of mara's army shooting flaming arrows at him and right so what to do should we try to escape our difficult mind our difficult thoughts well no that's not uh, that's not the practice either right now, again, can you do that? You absolutely can do that. And there are meditative states and there are particular methods that are designed for bliss. Yeah. That's why they're called the heavenly dwellings. <laughs> because these are meditations that are supposed to be heavenly. They are supposed to be blissed out. Wonderful, joyful, vast, bright, spacious mind. No hindrances anywhere to be seen. No difficulties, no obstacles. But that too, right? That's not a place, that's not the end of the practice. That's not the goal of the practice. That's just an instrument for working with the mind, for setting an intention of kindness or compassion or empathy or equanimity.
then you have those meditative states where you can leave behind the body completely. Right? Jhanas, third jhana, fourth jhana, sometimes it's hard to tell. But certainly by fourth jhana, there's no sense of the body at all. You want to be not feeling any pain, that is the place to hang out. Right? Where the mind has dropped off layer by layer, various kinds of stimulation until arriving at this very, very subtle form. But interestingly, that's also not the goal, right? That's not the end point. Even though some uh, samadhi, uh, right immersion or right absorption is the eighth of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, it's not the end or the goal. And even when people had extreme states of pain in their bodies or difficulty with their bodies or going through the dying process, the Buddha didn't recommend tuning out the body. He actually recommended mindfulness even in those situations. Venerable Analia wrote a lovely book about that, about death. And the meditations that the Buddha recommended when dealing with a painful body or a dying body. So there are all these ways in which we might have the instruments with which to tune out by doing our practice. But that would be to miss the point. That would be to miss the point. So what is the point? Why give us all those methods if those things are not the goal? Right? Because some traditions just threw all that stuff out the window. No need to bother with any of those tools. But I would say that they're very helpful, actually, because they are giving us different means of working with the mind of understanding how the mind works, understanding the, the incredible power and flexibility that our minds have. And once we do that, then I would suggest that we can get to the point, which is to attend to everything that we find in our experience. To learn that even harmful or painful or unwholesome thoughts can actually be practiced with. They are actually equally 
our tools on the path. Experiences that can help us to open up the wisdom of knowing what's true about our lives, the wisdom of knowing the nature of this mind and body. But only if they're attended to mindfully, only if they're attended to skillfully. You have to choose when you see these kinds of states. You have to choose how to respond to what you see. That's why it's helpful to develop the Brahma Viharas, for example, the stability of mind of a jhana or the clarity or the intention. There's a very good uh, sutta called the, the Longer Discourse on Emptiness. <laughs> I usually talk about the shorter discourse on emptiness, but today I'm going to talk about the longer discourse on emptiness. That's Middle Length Discourse 122. And, uh, and I don't want to go into the theory of emptiness. I want to talk about how the Buddha speaks about working with our minds in that sutta. And so he says, he says, well, so there you are, and you are, he, he gives examples, right, as he, as he often does. He says, okay, so there you are, and you're a practitioner, and you're focused on trying to meditate on emptiness, or you're trying to meditate on the uh, stillness, or you're trying to meditate on any number of different qualities, but you find that your mind is not confident, or you find that your mind is not settled on the thing you want to study. And then he says, and then you're aware of the situation. <laughs> it's that simple. You saw it. That's it. That's what you have to work with. I was talking to somebody recently who's another Dharma teacher, and we were talking about uh, guided meditations. And I said, well, you know, the only reason to tell you ahead of time what kind of meditation we're going to do is so that you can see whether or not you can do it. Otherwise, there's no reason to tell you. Otherwise, we just kind of walk through it. So you might see somebody do it one way or somebody do it another way. But it's for you to see whether or not your mind is willing to work in that way or to observe in that way or to turn the attention in various ways. Not as a means of criticizing yourself or as a means of worrying about where you are in your practice or, you know, 
oh, have I achieved the seventh rank of the bodhisattva or not? <laughs> no, not about that, right? It is about presence with the mind that you have. What is it that you're working with? What is both the, the content of it, but the way that you can or cannot attend to your experience? So he says, if you are, if you see that, then you've observed it. You're aware of the situation, sampajana, sampajana. And sampajano, or sampajano, sampajano, which is the, means one, that one, you are aware, means well, under, it means understanding well, or it means kind of attentive or thoughtful. In fact, in the Polytext Dictionary, I was interested to see that it means, it says almost a synonym for mindfulness. Almost. But a little bit more than that. A little bit more of the understanding comes into it. Whereas mindfulness is the receptivity and the presence with. And sampajano, I would say, sampajanya or sampajana is uh, yes, a a thoughtfulness or a, a bit of a bit more understanding what's there, what's possible, what's present. And so there are various kinds of this uh, understanding or knowing that are described in the suttas. But the most interesting part is the next part, which is in which the Buddha says, okay, so then you've observed that. And then you sit down and you say, okay, I'm going to meditate on emptiness or I'm going to meditate on the immovable part of the mind. Or, And you pick the same topic. And then he says, and you pick the same object. You look at the same thing. And then you notice, ah, the mind is settled. The mind is diligent. The mind is understanding. So do you see the point of the second line? The point of the second line is it isn't about the shift from one thing to another. It's about the practice of observing what's present, what's being engaged with, the qualities of the mind. So he continues and he says, you should regularly check your mind. You should regularly check your mind. Check in. Observe. Does my mind take an interest in this or in that, in the hindrances, in the, in the wholesome qualities? You check in. You observe. And in that way, you come to understand. And later he gets to holding up what is the most important type of understanding that comes out of this, which is the understanding of the arising and ceasing. That by looking at 
the qualities of mind that are present and really being willing to acknowledge them to really to really understand to be quote unquote aware of the situation as the buddha said then you can see more and more precisely the nature of impermanence happening within the mind at all times. You become less and less identified with any particular state because you know, because you've seen, oh, right. There's a difference between me thinking uh, some story about some person that I might be angry with and me thinking, oh, I see that I'm spinning this story. You see what I'm saying? So I'll give you an example from my experience and then I'll stop and maybe do some Q&A. So there was a time, and some of you have heard this story, so bear with me. As I say, repetition is good. <laughs> so there was a time when I was uh, living at San Francisco Zen Center, and I was one of the people called the residence representatives. And that meant you had to attend certain meetings, <laughs> but it also meant that you carried a master key to the building for those instances when people would get locked out of their rooms or lose their key so you could help them to get into the building. And so there were always two resident reps so that there was always somebody around who had a key to let people in if they got locked out of either the building or their personal room. And so I was the residence rep together with this other gentleman with whom I had a terrible time communicating. We were just really, really very different personalities, very different types of communicators. We had a really hard time trying to work together. But anyway, we, ha we were just starting to, to, uh, to try to be the two, oops, the two residence reps. And, uh, and we said, okay, I live in one building. There are two buildings that, that we both have the key to. I live in one building, you live in one building, but um, his idea was we would put his phone number up in the building that he lived in and my phone number up in the building that I lived in, and that way everybody would have access. But my idea was there are two of us for a reason, so we should put both of our phone numbers in both buildings because then there are better odds that somebody would be able to catch one of us if there's a problem. So, okay, after quite a bit of discussion, then we decided that's what we would do. We would put both phone numbers on the bulletin board in both of the two residence buildings. So some number of days went by, days went by, and I went over to his building, which was the main building, the 300 Page Street building. And I kept looking at the bulletin board and there's no, no, nothing posted there. And days went by, and I'm starting to get really irritated. And then I walk by the bulletin board one day, and sure enough, there's a little piece of paper up there with just his name and phone number and not both of us. 
And I got really annoyed. I was just like, why did I even waste my breath with this guy? We had had this whole conversation about it. We came to an agreement and look at this, like he didn't even follow through. I was really annoyed. I was like, okay, I'm going to talk to him about it when I see him. So there we are. I catch him in the hallway and I say to him, hey, I saw that you, there's a, your name and number, only your name and number are up there on the bulletin board. And before I had a chance to say anything else, he said, oh yeah, I didn't get around to it, so so so-and-so did it. And immediately my whole bubble burst. Like, I was furious, right? And I had this whole story about how he hadn't done what we had agreed to do. But that was just a story. That wasn't actually what was happening. So if I had, which I didn't do at that time, if I had stopped to say, oh, I see that I'm getting annoyed and I'm telling this story about him and I should check in with him about what happened, then I personally would have had a very different experience, right? But I didn't think to do that until afterward. Afterward, when my story was proven wrong, then I saw, oh, right, I missed my opportunity to look at that anger, to look at that story and be and treat that as something that I want to be aware of. Instead, I got all caught up in it. Right? So it would have been a very different experience for me. And I would say in future experiences, it was a different, very experience, a very different experience for me when it comes up. Because then I can look at it and say, oh, right. Look at that thing that's happening. Look at that thought that's happening. Rather than be completely swept away by the feeling of it. So as the Buddha said, you should regularly check your mind. (laughs) Check in. Get found. Don't use the practice to hide away from your body or your thoughts or your feelings, even the hard ones, even the painful ones, even the unskillful ones. Use your practice to get found. Thank you. That's what I want to share today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.